I'm not taking sides here one way or the other. It's just that the, the reason I and others were sort of critical of this is that I don't think you could argue that this was really a good faith effort on the behalf of Republicans in the state, because it was very clearly that there wasn't like just some issue that sort of organically came up, even though it has been discussed in election circles in Ohio for years. It was like, oh, hey, we see stuff coming down the pike real quick here that we don't like. Let's erect this barrier in front of it. This was designed specifically as an August election after August elections have been eliminated to try to raise the bar here. And not only to raise the percentage bar, but also it would have changed the signature requirements to uh, require uh, signatures from all 88 counties in the state, um, which range from being tiny to giant. Welcome to Politics is Everything, where we're talking about what happens when you try to take away power from voters. I'm Kara Ongwele. And I'm Kyle Condon. This week, there was a big vote in Ohio that attempted to make voters less powerful, uh, but it didn't work. Some context, um, in January, the Republican-controlled legislature moved in January to cancel most August elections because they were tended to be low turnout and voters rarely paid attention to them. Just 8% of voters turned up in an August 2022 state legislative primary election. Uh, but this year, they decided to have a vote on uh, uh, an initiative called Issue 1, which would have raised the threshold required uh, for the passage of a constitutional amendment. Um, in the 111 years that Ohio voters have had the power to propose and vote on ballot initiatives, um, only about a third of constitutional amendments manage to exceed the 60% threshold, um, according to Ballotpedia. So the vote this week was largely seen, though, as, as a measure um, to prevent um, a November election ballot initiative to protect and codify reproductive rights in the state constitution. Tell us what you found about the vote and, and what we know about turnout. So, you know, what we, I think that what happened with the issue one vote is very much in keeping with what we've seen in a lot of other states that have had ballot issues that are either directly or indirectly about, uh, you know, abortion slash reproductive rights since the Dobbs decision last summer in that you basically have votes in a lot of places that uh, even places that are Republican at the federal level, which is how I would describe Ohio these days. Um, but where the the sort of the, the left side or the Democratic side, the kind of pro-choice side um, has generally, you know, kind of punched above their weight in terms of how these votes have gone. And so issue one failed by 14 points. You know, in our article, we compared it to the Senate race from last year that J.D. Vance Republican won by six points. So it was like a 20 point swing. Now, granted, it's sort of an apples to oranges comparison in that, you know, a, a ballot issue is a is a not is a technically nonpartisan vote. You know, obviously, Senate race is an actual partisan race. But, um, you know, I do think it's just telling to sort of look at it. And, you know, what we found is basically that, you know, turnout in some of the, um, uh, you know, reddening Southeast Ohio, Appalachian area was, was really pretty poor compared to how the state the state turned out as a whole. Um, and, uh, you know, turnout in some of the big Democratic urban cores was pretty good. Um, there was both a turnout and a persuasion problem for um, the right in this in this particular um, election. And, you know, one of the things I can sort of consistently heard about this both before and after the vote was that Republicans were just bleeding um, a small but significant share of their own voters, you know, maybe like 15, 20 percent. Um, and also Democrats were engaged to vote. So you put that together and that's how a, you know, a light red state could produce this outcome that is, you know, was 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 a pretty big win for 
again, the sort of left slash democratic uh, uh, position on this issue. Just to sort of go into it a little bit deeper, you know, Ohio is an increasingly conservative state. Um, Donald Trump won the state by eight percentage points in 2020. Does this vote tell us anything about what may happen in, at the at the presidential level or at the federal level in the future? I don't think in a 2024 context it does, although I do think there were some patterns that are interesting and that are things that Democrats, I think, would have to be able to build on or um, you know, you know, in order to, to, to really compete strongly at the statewide level, you know, in the, in the longer term, uh, there are a lot of, uh, suburban slash exurban counties that surround, um, some of the big metro counties, uh, where, uh, a turnout was really fairly, fairly strong, uh, on this issue and the Republicans did poorly. Now, a lot of these places are, have, uh, um, you know, they're, they're relatively affluent, um, they're exurban, um, they're relatively highly educated, but they're also still really pretty Republican. Uh, and, you know, Donald Trump may have done worse in some of in, in these places than, um, uh, than, you know, previous Republican presidential candidates had done, but, but the slide was not particularly strong. Uh, and another thing about a lot of these counties, unlike some other, um, similar kinds of counties across the country that have trended, you know, strongly democratic is that, a lot of these counties are, are very overwhelmingly white. And so that probably is, a, is an important demographic feature. There are probably other things that at play here too, particularly um, so- Southwest Ohio uh, is, um, you know, f- you know, just higher in terms of uh, uh, you know, evangelical Christian identification, which I think has political consequences given how deeply Republican that group is. But, um, but the, the point of all this is just to say that this issue did p- poorly in those places um, and Democrats need to do better in those places to compete statewide because some of their other vote centers across the state have withered in the, in the Trump era. I don't think you can look at a lot of these counties that, you know, Trump won by 15, 20, even more, um, in terms of margin in 2020 and say, oh, well, those places are going to swing heavily democratic in 2024, but maybe over the longer term, there's some growth potential for Democrats in those places. And I think there kind of has to be in order for the state to become truly competitive again. And, you know, these are also places where I think you, you, you would, if you're Sherrod Brown, Democratic senator up for re-election next year, these are places where you're, you'd be hoping to cut the Republican margins a little bit um, because I think some of Sherrod Brown's old vote sources, you know, the fact that he was able to keep a lot of Southeast Ohio a lot closer than, than say, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden did, that may very well fall away in 2020, in, in 2024. So again, I don't think it's predictive necessarily of next year, but it does prevent, present some places where I think Democrats could look for longer term improvement, again, as they try to dig out of what, what has become kind of a deep hole in the state. Let's talk a little bit more about turnout, because turnout really did seem to matter um, in, in this election, just in terms of overall numbers. The turnout for the issue one vote was significantly higher than um, a May 2022 primary, which did feature a competitive um, Republican primary for the Senate nomination. Um, and and then also, I think perhaps even more importantly, the early voting turnout was was quite high. Um, as of now, it, you know, ballots may still be arriving, but as of now, some close to 640,000 um, early votes uh, were, were cast. Um, and and that sort of is is more than uh, the entirety of turnout for the 2022 August um, uh, special election. 
I wonder if this tells us anything about about motivating voters. Um, again, you know, this was even though this was a vote about increasing the threshold required to pass a constitutional amendment, you know, it was also seen as a proxy for reproductive rights. Yeah. Look, I think people were pretty engaged in this issue. Uh, there was a lot of you know money that came in. And so there was, uh, you know, I guess, voter education about it. But I kind of think when Republicans put this on the ballot, they sort of hoped they could just sort of slip it by. And then interestingly, as we got closer to the election, as you know, the early vote came in and, um, you know, I think that when you throw in the absentees and everything, and some of them are, are, are uncounted, it looks like the early vote's going to be like maybe about a quarter of the total votes cast. Um, and it was about 3 million votes cast um, statewide. But um, as we got closer to election day and, and Republicans realized that they were, you know, very much behind in the early vote, which is pretty common for the, for the early vote in Ohio. And then Republicans will typically make it, make it up on election day. Um, you know, Republicans were hoping for a big election day turnout, but I think they were thinking more like, oh, it's like over 2 million votes cast or somewhere between two and 2.5 million. Well, it actually ended up being 300, 3 million. Um, and so it, it, it kind of reminded me in some ways of what I sort of understood about the turnout dynamic in both the 2017 and 2021 Virginia governor's races in that the losing side seemed to want a certain level of turnout and then they got that level of turnout, in, but then there was even more, and they got sort of swamped by that, both the Republicans in, in 2017 and the Democrats in 2021, although that the race in 2021 was obviously uh, closer. It was a you know, two-point margin for, um, for, for Glenn Youngkin in, in the governor's race. But I, that just sort of reminded me, just to, in talking to some people about it, just reminded me of that kind of dynamic. And I think it just goes to show that these, you know, these kinds of ballot issues where, again, it's not directly about abortion, but, but it, it's, it's indirectly about uh, abortion rights and, and and you know it's it sort of sets up a, the next vote coming up in November that is uh, you know specifically about basically enshrining kind of Roe v Wade style um, protections for abortion rights into the state constitution. Um, so I think people sort of understood that, and so the 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 turnout, the total number of votes cast was about seventy five percent of the uh, the November midterm, which again I think is a really excellent turnout for um, a vote like this and. You know, again, that's that you've used that seventy-five percent number as a benchmark. There were a lot of, not all, but a lot of places that have become pretty Republican at the presidential level that sort of punched below that, and some of the big Democratic counties punched above that, including um, Cuyahoga County, where Cleveland is, which is the, you know, combined with Franklin County, where Columbus is. Those are the two most important and you know most Democratic places in the state, uh, and they both turned out quite well. As did uh, Hamilton County, where Cincinnati is which used to be more Republican-leaning, but has now become a Democratic county. It seems to me that there, you know, that one, uh, there's this media narrative um, that that seems to to predominate that a year after Roe versus Wade was overturned, um, uh, that the reproductive rights issues is, is still a big motivating factor. Um, and converse to that, that Republicans are struggling with messaging around um, abortion rights. Um, so that that seems to be sort of a key theme that that we're learning from the ballot initiatives um, around this issue. Um, and the second thing is just how much outside spending is playing. And you raised the issue of funding. Um, both sides of this issue one vote actually, you know, criticized the role of of outside funding, and yet outside funding, out-of-state funding was the primary driver um, of, of funding in, in these elections. Um, protect, the, protect Women Ohio, um, which is campaigning against the fall abortion issue, 
spent five and a half million dollars on ad buys to support issue one um, just in the last week before the election, according to Ad Impact. On, on par, you know, both sides spent, you know, big money um, uh, for for a ballot, a, a ballot initiative. Yeah, uh, there was a ton of money that came in on this. And yeah, it was indeed a lot of out of state money really on on uh, on both sides. And so, again, that was like part of the campaign messaging. But, you know, if you took one quick glance on it, you could see that there was, you know, there's a ton of out of state money. And then, you know, we're, we're in a nationalized era of, for for these sorts of issues. And so it's no it's no real surprise that there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, groups outside the state that, that are that are playing on these on these things. Uh, and again, I think it was it was widely understood to be sort of a, a proxy fight about uh, about reproductive rights that sets up the the, the, the November vote, which is an actual um, direct vote on on that uh, on that issue. One thing we do know is that is that I, the the aggregate spending actually ended up relatively close at the end, but the no side on issue one, which is sort of the basically the Democratic side of this of this issue, they had the airwaves to themselves for you know many of the weeks in advance of this. Uh, election and then sort of the, the the yes side, the Republican side, sort of caught up at the end, and I think actually um, outspent them slightly. In uh, the the Republican side, outspent the Democratic side very slightly at the end. Um, but uh, people on both sides, you know, cited the uh, the 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 the, uh, uh, the money edge and the spending edge for the um, for the no side. Um, you know, earlier on, so someone described it to me as. You know, it was like there was a monologue going on and then it became a dialogue at the end. But it was helpful to the Democrats, particularly because the Democrats are so reliant on the early vote. So it seems like, you know, again, about the quarter of the electorate that was of the vote to cast was cast early. That issue one failed by something like 40 points. And then Election Day, it seems like the no side still won Election Day, but it was by a much, much smaller margin, you know, like a single digit margin. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, and again, it. it you know, one hand, it speaks to the the way both sides sort of perceive their vote as that the Republicans are more reliant on election day, Democrats more reliant on the early vote. But the early vote is not big enough for the Democrat, you know, to, to to provide Democrats with victory alone. You know, if you go back to like 2020, you know, I remember on election night, um, you know, Ohio Biden was leading in Ohio by a lot and down in Pennsylvania a lot. But that all that had to meet do was what kind of votes were getting counted. You know, in Ohio, it was the early votes getting counted. In Ohio, in Pennsylvania, it was the election day votes getting counted. Um, and, uh, you know, those things get sorted out at, at the end. But, um, you know, the early vote lead for um, for the for no was way higher than it was for Biden or for Tim Ryan and Democratic Senate candidate in 2022. And so, yes, the, the yes side did catch up, but they never got particularly close. Obviously, I mean, it, it was a 14 point margin, so it was it was not overall close. Another thing that I have read about this issue is that it may have been more motivating for Democrats to turn out of to, to turn out to vote specifically because of the reproductive rights issues, but not as motivating for Republicans to turn out um, simply because, you know, they also didn't want to see the the threshold for um, for constitutional amendments to be raised. Yeah, I mean you're 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 really asking voters to take power away from themselves, which I think is just inherently kind of a difficult argument. And these kind of issues have been on the ballot in some other places recently and they've generally failed. There was one in Arizona that passed, but it specifically had to do with ballot issues that ha- that would raise taxes, I think. And so um that's when I could imagine the voters like, "Oh yeah, you know, I don't want want there to I want there to be a higher threshold for raising taxes." But just generally speaking, 
um, it was not as popular of an argument. And so that's why, you know, again, we, we know that at least, a, a, a you know, certainly not a majority or anything, but, but a significant segment of Republican voters, maybe some of whom, Frank, you know, are, would, would, would uh, vote no on the reproductive rights issue coming up in November, um, also, you know, voted no on this, on this particular issue. But you, again, you could see it, you could see the, the, the Democratic advantage, I think, both in sort of like a turnout sense and also in a, uh, in a, in a, in a persuasion sense. Um, and, uh, and again, you know, I don't, I don't think that the abortion issue is, is, is some sort of done deal for November, but, you know, I do think you, you could argue that the, that the, 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 the sort of liberal democratic side, you know, starts with an edge there and then we'll see, um, how the campaign is actually, you know, is actually conducted. Um, I, I wanted to point out another, p uh, another element of public opinion on this as well. And that is there's a new Reuters Ipsos, um, uh, survey out that shows that only 2% of survey respondents believe that abortion is the most uh, pressing problem facing the United States today. So, you know, again, I, I bring that up just as, um, you know, uh, to, to further your point about, you know, what might what might happen in November when it is just about uh, uh, reproductive rights. Typically, like pre-Dobbs, um, to the extent that there were voters who like, you know, highly prioritized abortion, it was generally conservatives who didn't don't, you know, are not supportive of, of abortion rights. You know, that dynamic has changed a little bit. And of course, it makes sense given that, you know, Roe v. or, you know, the Dobbs decision, you know, eliminated what, what had been, you know, robust federal protections um, for, you know, for, for, uh, for, for abortion rights. And so, um, you know, I think it sort of changed the motivation a bit. And, you know, I think also, um, and this, I think, so think sometimes explains what happens in midterms. It's like, if you're, if you're the side that's angry, if you're the side who's, you know, who maybe was on the wrong side of the last election or whatever, it could be sort of mo more motivating for you. And again, I think we've probably seen that in these, um, in these issues that have happened, be it in Ohio on Tuesday or, um, Kentucky and Montana, you know, and, and Michigan last year, you know, in Michigan, the, um, um, the, the, the constitutional amendment there, um, which is, I think is pretty similar to the one that's going to be on the ballot in, in Ohio in, in November that, that passed pretty strongly, but it, it also mirrored the gubernatorial vote to a, to a large degree. It did a little bit better than a gubernatorial vote. Um, and I think that issue may have gotten sort of partisanized to a large degree in that state. You know, one advantage, I think that, that the, um, the people who support the reproductive rights amendment coming up in November in Ohio is that it's not happening concurrently with the federal or statewide election. It's kind of a standalone thing. I mean, there's you know, local races and whatnot, but there's nothing going on at the state at the statewide level. And so um, one of the things I you just have read about some of the um, uh, some of the groups that are, uh, you know, supportive of reproductive rights and want to put these things on the ballot after Dobbs, uh, that they kind of want to departisanize the issue. Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and in a state like Ohio, I think that's important because, you know, the sort of default position I think is a, is a more Republican leaning one, although Ohio is still a more competitive state than like a Kentucky or, or a Kansas, at least at this particular point. Um, so that might actually be helpful to, um, to the, again, sort of the democratic side in this, uh, in this upcoming election in, uh, in November. Um, there's one other point I just wanted to make here, um, which, uh, I wanted to make in the, in the piece we wrote, but I, I, I didn't actually say it, but you know, there may be like, you, I think you can make a principled good faith argument, whether you agree or disagree with it, that just a 50, a bare 50% majority to amend the state constitution, a statewide issue. Maybe that's too low. Okay. Again, I'm not taking sides here one way or the other. Um, it's just that 
the, the reason I and others were sort of critical of this is that I don't think you can argue that this was really a good faith effort on the behalf of Republicans in the state, because it was very clearly that it wasn't just like, you know, there, there, there wasn't like just some issue that sort of organically came up, even though it has been discussed in election circles in Ohio for years, it was like, oh, hey, we see stuff coming down the pike real quick here that we don't like. Let's erect this barrier in front of it. And so again, like, like, you know, Florida raised the threshold for constitutional amendments in the 2000s. And part of it was that there were these kind of like issues that people thought were sort of like nuisance kind of issues that were, you know, coming up as constitutional amendments. So they raised the bar for it. And again, I'm not saying it's good or bad or whatever. People can have different opinions on it. It's just that this was designed specifically to, um, as an August election after August elections had been eliminated to try to raise the bar here and not only to raise the percentage bar, but also it would have changed the signature requirements to, uh, require uh, signatures from all 88 states, a certain a certain threshold, or from all 88 counties in the state, um, which range from being tiny to you know giant, Cuyahoga and Franklin and Hamilton, and also um, there's this sort of cure kind of period that you get for signatures. Um, so if your signatures are deficient, you have a little bit of time to 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 fix them. This would have eliminated that for constitutional amendments. So it really made it very difficult, not just to pass these things, but to get them on the ballot. And so again, like maybe, you know, I think Republicans of the state like want to go back to the well on this, you know, like maybe there is a, there is a, 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 a reasonable argument to make these things a little bit harder to pass. Although again, the signature, the signature question, I think was a real tell that, that the Republicans were just trying to stack the deck in their favor on these particular issues. And they were worried about this reproductive rights amendment and also um, the, the high likelihood that Ohio is probably going to have a vote on redistricting reform. Because there is a new system in Ohio, but it's basically a convoluted joke. Um, and so if you really want some sort of independent redistricting, um, it would have to come in the form probably of a constitutional amendment. Because the other thing is that, you know, this vote would not have affected all statewide ballot issues in Ohio, just constitutional amendments. But statewide ballot issues, you know, the legislature could go in and mess with them after they're passed. And so if you want to do something that the legislature can't touch, um, the Constitution is the way to, to do it. Well, speaking of, you know, not being a good faith effort, um, if we look at the case of Montana last year, 53% of voters rejected a referendum that uh, was an anti-abortion um, a measure, but there the state legislature then uh, passed um, a, a version of the anti-abortion proposal that was then signed by Republican Governor Greg Gianforte um, just this year. You know, we can't just go around voters on these. But, you know, in the case of Montana, the trifecta Republican control of the state um, has literally just gone around voters. Yeah. And I mean, again, part of the part of the argument to have, you know, just a 50 percent bar for constitutional amendment, again, is that there's something where the opinion of the broader public is a lot different than the partisanship of the state. Then the constitutional amendment allows the ability for the voters to impose stuff that the legislature otherwise wouldn't do. And then, you know, it also gets into sort of like theories of governance and like, you know, how much power should or does the legislature and the governor have? Should the public have um, the ability to essentially go over the top of them? There are a lot of states where that's the case. Ohio is still one of them. Um, but there are also a lot of states that don't have a, um, you know, a sort of voter initiated constitutional amendment um, um, process. Um, but, you know, I mean, I guess. I mean, look, I mean, the abortion issue is a 
complicated one with very deeply held opinions on both sides. But I will say that generally speaking, and this is the problem that Republicans keep butting into here in the post-Roe era, is that the Democratic position on it is just closer to where the median voter is than the Republican position. So that's why when you have these votes, the Republicans are consistently bleeding votes on it. And so, you know, um, and this, this upcoming election in Ohio is another test for the, you know, for the, for the, 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 the quote unquote pro-life side to try to figure out a way to stop one of these things. Because again, they've been getting defeated on these sorts of issues, um, for the last year now, and they're going to be more of them too. I think Arizona, um, is, is another state where, uh, that's coming down the, the line. I mean, as, as we're recording now, there was some reporting that governor DeWine and some of the Republican leadership in the state, were going to try to maybe figure out a way that they can modify the abortion restrictions. They, uh, they, they, they had recently passed, although they're, they're currently held up in the courts, but it's like a, basically the, the so-called heartbeat bill, like a six week ban, like, you know, maybe there's a way in which they could pass something that is somewhere between what's on the ballot in November and what is in place now. But I don't see a lot of political will on the Republican side to sort of bend on that issue. And it's like, a, you know, it's a classic thing in, in, in politics. It's like, do you try, do you preemptively give up something now or do you potentially get hammered later? And this is the choice that Republicans in Ohio now face. And, you know, I'd be, I'd be surprised if they, if they tried to move closer, you know, significantly closer where the, the, the middle is on this issue. But, uh, but that's, that's part of the dynamic here is, you know, Republicans are not powerless in this. If they want to try to do something head off what happens in November, that's different than just trying to change the rules, but actually trying to meet the voters where they are on this. Um, but again, it's an opportunity they have, but it's an opportunity I, I wouldn't expect them to take just because their own opposition to, um, to, to abortion rights is just, is just very strong. Well, Kyle, thank you as always. Thank you. Good talking with you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much this for tuning in. This podcast is part Until of the Democracy time. Group.